welcome to a Nutrition in Clinical Practice podcast. I am Dr. Mary McCarthy, a nurse scientist and associate editor for Nutrition in Clinical Practice. With me today is Dr. Gail Cresci, a microbiome researcher, a registered and licensed dietitian, and certified nutrition support clinician from the Cleveland Clinic, where she is faculty in the Department of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Inflammation and Immunity, as well as Director of Nutrition Research within the Center for Human Nutrition. Dr. Fatima Ramazani, PhD, is also from the Cleveland Clinic, where she is a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Kreshi's lab in the Department of Inflammation and Immunity at the Lerner Research Institute. Gail and Fatima co-authored the paper we will be discussing today, titled Early Life Gut Microbiome, The Role of Maternal and Infant Factors in Its Establishment. This paper will be published in the June 2020 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you for joining me today, Gail and Fatima. Before we start, are there any disclosures that either of you need to make related to this topic? Uh, no, this is Gail. I don't have any disclosures. Great. Well, let's get started. So, Gail, this is a very in-depth and impressive review of the neonatal gut microbiome. Overall, the paper focuses on both maternal and infant factors known to influence early life gut colonization, the neonatal gut microbiome, and then the association with chronic health conditions confronting adults later in life, such as allergies, asthma, and obesity. So let's start with a brief discussion of the initial colonization and some maternal and infant determinant factors that influence this colonization. Well, thank you, Mary. Thank you for inviting us. We're really excited to participate in this podcast today. And you asked a very important question because it's really interesting. We, we tend not to think about all these different factors. And um, so we know that the infant is colonized. And we used to think that first colonization resulted with um, the mode of delivery. But we now know that there's in utero colonization that goes on for the infant. And then the first major colonization for the infant is through the delivery mode. So whether the uh, baby is born vaginally versus by cesarean section, there's differences in that initial colonization. The next major factor is the mode of delivery. So, uh, I mean, mode of feeding. So whether the infant is fed by uh, breast milk versus formula feeding, uh, the colonization patterns can change. And then how the other dietary factors or other medications that the infant may be exposed to in early life can also influence. But we also know that there's maternal factors that influence the infant gut microbiome. So in gestation, the mom's diet can actually influence the baby's gut microbiome because, like I mentioned, there's that in utero colonization that goes on. Also, that can influence, so the mom's vaginal microbiota can influence the colonization. And then, of course, the maternal skin during not only by cesarean section delivery, but also during that um, early colonization through breastfeeding and just the maternal infant contact that goes on. Other maternal uh, conditions include gestational age of the baby. There's differences. Also, mom's age can influence the microbiome. 
And then mom's maternal condition. So whether the mom's involved with different risky behaviors such as smoking or alcohol or medication consumption can alter her gut microbiome, which can alter then the infant gut microbiome. And then I mentioned mom's diet really is a new area that we're starting to gain uh, bigger appreciation for, as well as other environmental exposures. So just the quality of the air, geographical region of where the mom may be, we know that there's differences there as well. So a whole list of factors that can influence. And then you wanted me to define gut dysbiosis. So we know that infants have, or humans have, infants and humans, I guess, adults, have a certain colonization pattern. And so what gut dysbiosis really refers to is when there's some type of alteration in what we define as a healthy gut microbiome. And this could be a, a change in the alpha diversity, which is really the way that the predominance of each major phylum or bacteria, or the beta diversity, which could be the way that the, the bacteria interact with each other. Oh, thanks for helping us out with that definition. That's important, I think, to gain an early understanding as someone starts reading the paper. It's a very exciting field. I'm wondering, Fatima, can you speak to the laboratory models that have been used to study this phenomenon? Are they in animals or humans? And maybe you could tell us all how you became interested in the topic and maybe what experiments you might be working on to advance uh, understanding of the neonatal gut microbiome. Uh, first of all, thanks, Dr. McCarthy, to inviting me here. It's so exciting for me to talk about this review paper here. So regarding the approaches and methods that we have today to study the human microbiome profiling, uh, these include systems for studying the human microbiome, animal models, and culture systems. Epidemiological studies based on human populations are amenable to directly measure the exposures and health outcomes and to find the correlation between these results. However, they have some downsides. They are expensive and difficult to control regarding to the sample collection, data generation, and data analysis. In particular, to study the causality Human interventional studies are not suitable. Conducting additional targeted approaches might be useful to establish stability and mechanism. These approaches commonly involve transferring human microbiome samples, either the whole community or individual microbial strains, into controlled animal models such as mice. These notobiotic animal models also have some drawbacks. They are regarding to the facilities and maintenance, and the results might not recapitulate the exact structure of the human microbial community. And finally, we have in vitro microbial systems in which we have host cells in the microbial culture. These methods are widely available, providing a perfect controllable environment to study the mechanism and molecular pathways. And the combination of all these methods can help us to have a better understanding regarding to the gut microbiome. So you're asking about how I got interested into this topic. Through my PhD project, I got interested in early life exposures and their impact on later life outcomes. 
I work with laboratory animals to find the role of dietary glucose hexanoic acid in mitigating the adverse effects of prenatal alcohol exposure in offspring development. By working more about the gut microbiome and their role in the regulation of health conditions in the body, I got more interested in understanding the role of maternal factors and risk lifestyle in the maternal gut and breast milk microbial community, and as a result, the neonatal gut microbial colonization and their health outcomes later in life. Currently, in Dr. Kreshke lab, we are looking at the clinical projects, finding the patterns of early gut colonization and some chronic disease conditions related to the maternal diet, obesity, and risk of lifestyle. Well, thank you for that. But Gail, let's get back to the changes in the microbiome in early childhood and then into adulthood. Can you summarize for the listeners the major differences in the gut microbiome between children and adults? Yeah, sure. It's really interesting. Um, So like I mentioned that the first colonization begins with birth and then develops up until really about the age of three where the infant microbiome resembles that more of an adult. So in those early first couple years of life, the infant's microbiome is dominated by bifidiobacteria and lactobacillus, and then later will become enriched with uh, bacteroides and firmicutes, which is that of an adult. And what's interesting is their diet shift. So from an infant diet with predominantly milk that's where we see the predominance of the lactobacillus and bifidiobacteria. But as the diet advances and becomes more complex, then the genes that are relevant to plant polysaccharide metabolism, those actually start to become more evident in the infant gut. So it's really cool to see how the genes and everything evolve with the diet to help take care of the different nutrients that are being presented. And there has been some characterization of the metagenomic profiles between pediatric and adult microbiomes. And what I also find interesting is that in one paper, they found that children were enriched with genes that support ongoing development, such as de novo folate synthesis and amino acid metabolism, where adults were more enriched with genes involved with pathways for oxidative phosphorylation, Um, lipopolysaccharide biosynthesis, flagellar assembly, and um, steroid hormone biosynthesis. So it's really interesting to see that um, how we we move along. And even though there's about 35 to 46% taxonomic similarity between gut microbiome communities in children, the functional capacity of these microbes are um, pretty highly conserved. So despite the different microbes that are there, their functions are similar. Thank you for that. I wanted to have you now tell us a little bit about what you think some practical aspects of this research for translation to clinical practice um, might be. I, I was really intrigued with the role of infant feeding in protecting and preserving the infant gut microbiome. Would you be able to elaborate a little bit more on infant feeding? I know you just mentioned it a little bit, but um, maybe starting with maternal milk? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we've always known as nutritionists that mother's milk or breast milk is the best food source for our infant because its composition coincides with gestational age of the infant, which is really interesting. There's many bioactive molecules in maternal milk. Maternal milk is, you know, of course, full of immunoglobulins. It's got antioxidants in it. It's got the right blend of the protein, fat, and carbohydrates. But for the microbiome, what's really interesting is that, you know, maternal milk is very rich in prebiotics, so human milk oligosaccharides. And these are, we find, very, very important to help maintain the ideal compositional blend of the microbiome. And then what's even more intriguing is that there's microbes in human milk. So human milk is not sterile and that there is lactobacillus and bifidiobacterium as well as some other bacteria found in human milk. And so all of these components help to maintain um, a healthy gut microbiome in the infant. Infant formula, of course, we need to feed our baby. So infant formula is for infants that are unable to be fed with maternal milk. And infant formula, even though you know, infant formula companies really try to mimic human milk as much as possible, it doesn't quite come the same. It doesn't have all these bioactive compounds cannot be replicated exactly as human milk. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So Fatima, I was hoping that we might be able to revisit some of the many maternal factors like mom's diet and um, perhaps obesity that you've mentioned in the paper. Tell us about the contribution of this to neonatal health outcomes. I'd like to appreciate explain maternal factors during pregnancy and lactation can determine the early colonization in the neonate. It studies link microbial changes in the infant size to uh, maternal chronic condition like obesity, as you mentioned. Infant gut dysbiosis associated with maternal obesity reported to be more evident in early life and shown to increase the gut permeability and directly initiate non-alcoholic fatty liver disease pathways. The intergenerational transmission of the obesogenic microbes hypothesis have been supported by several studies, but not all of them. And we have some controversy here that needs further investigation. Maternal waste status also might affect maternal milk microbial composition and might be an additional mechanism explaining the intensified obesity risk in infants born to obese and overweight mothers. So according to this, it's really interesting to know the role of maternal probiotic supplementation on breast milk as means to mitigate the obesity-related alterations. And the maternal diet uh, also is linked to the infant gut microbiota, and maternal high-fat diet has been reported to alter early bacterial colonization independent of maternal obesity. However, less is known regarding to the effects of other factors of a Western diet uh, on maternal infant gut dysbiosis, such as high sugar, high sodium, and animal proteins. In contrast, we have a Mediterranean diet 
that has been linked to improvement in the diversity and richness of the gut microbiota associated with a large number of health benefits. However, we don't know how potential beneficial effect of method of Mediterranean diet during gestation and lactation can protect the neonatal gut early colonization. Another maternal factor that can affect the early colonization is antibiotic exposure during gestation that's known to be related to short and long-term influences on the developing infant gut microbiome. Maternal treatment with antibiotics can also affect the breast milk microbiome with lower bacterial diversity, causing overgrowth of mastitis, uh, inducing opportunistic bacteria. And many mothers cease breastfeeding early due to painful mastitis. The combined reduction in the breast growth microbial diversity with early cessation of breastfeeding might lead to low intestinal diversity in the first week of life that is reported to be associated with increased risk of necrotizing enterocolitis. Other maternal factors, as Dr. Kirsch mentioned, is here that can affect the early colonization, like maternal stress, risky lifestyle, consuming alcohol, and uh, smoking cigarettes, but we have limited studies in this regard. All these studies highlight the importance of early life microbiome formation and its relationship to maternal factors, which offers a therapeutic approach by maternal intervention, and therefore we can modulate initial microbial colonization to reduce the risk of adverse health outcomes later in life. Wow, sounds like a, a lot more for moms to be thinking about these days than I remember thinking about. But thank you for elaborating on the maternal factors. I think that covered some of what I was going to ask you about, Gail, with a take-home message for perhaps for women's health, if you will, women's population, moms-to-be. But I do have one other question. Maybe we could touch on the concept of maternal prebiotic or probiotic supplementation. Is there a recommendation for this now for pregnant women? Uh, that's a good question. If you pick up any probiotic supplement, typically they'll have on the label uh, not to take during pregnancy. And, you know, that's because there's still some question of whether it could be good or bad for the mom and, and the baby. But there's actually been a little bit of studies that have come out where mom's taking probiotics, and it's really about the strain that they're taking, and it's about the timing of when they're taking it. That's what I think has been key, is that taking most of the studies have been done where the moms are taking the probiotic in the third trimester or even just within a couple of weeks of delivery. And they're taking lactobacillus or bifidiobacterium. Um, so the typical strains that would be colonizing uh, the infant gut. And they actually have shown, you know, an association that if the mom's taken these, then the baby has actually been colonized with these. And, and it's been a lasting colonization, which is really, really cool. You know, but it's always good to have the mom just start with taking a healthy diet. You know, we always have worried, I don't know, when I was doing more maternal nutrition, is worrying about gestational diabetes and, you know, we talk about obesity, but we know just in the adult population, obesity is associated with gut dysbiosis. 
so are so many other chronic diseases, but people with chronic diseases get pregnant. And so I think this is where, you know, we really need to start paying attention and how that this gut dysbiosis can have a trickle-down effect to the offspring and then that trickle-down effect to, you know, chronic diseases that may arise in the baby during their later years of life. And there have been some studies looking at pre and probiotic supplementation in the baby. And again, people are, I tend to be a little bit nervous about that, but there's been a lot of good studies in preterm infants. And in Europe, it's actually a recommendation for preterm infants to prevent um, necrotizing enterocolitis. Here in the United States, it's a little concerning because making sure we have a non-contaminated probiotic product. But this is where prebiotics really are more relatively safe. And actually, the human milk oligosaccharides, have, there's been a couple that have been isolated from the breast milk and now commercially available. So this is really exciting, and I think that's an area of future research that we're going to start seeing develop and be able to you know, work from. So I'm really excited about this area. That's great. Well, I think that's pretty much going to be a wrap. I, I think this discussion's been very informative, but I know your paper goes into so much more detail, and the audience will definitely want to read it to appreciate the depth of the evidence that you both reviewed. I think there's like 214 references in your paper, and there's some additional pearls for bedside application. I do know that. I'm going to thank you both for your time today. Wish you all the best in your future research endeavors. And I'm going to let the listeners know that if they would like to read more about early life gut microbiome, the role of maternal and infant factors in its establishment, this paper will appear in the June 2020 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you.